As new roles on the team are forged in Seahawks minicamp, one familiar face is conspicuously absent. Meanwhile, our positional breakdown series continues as Matt Nichols dives into the new look Seattle O-line. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my stylish producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Sure as hell not stylish, Jackson. How are you? (laughs) I can see you right now. I know that's not true, but I'm excited for today, man, for a lot of reasons, but especially because we've got a fan favorite back in the house to chop up the offensive line with us. But before we get there, it's minicamp time, and it actually feels a little bit like football. How much attention do you pay to what's going on during these team activities? And if you do, what is it that you look for, Mike? None. Negative. <laughs> as little as humanly possible. Yeah. I mean, I think there is value in in staying in lockstep with the team during the offseason. But, you know, these OTAs, I feel that its greatest benefit is to see what you have and like your young, unheralded players that you're trying to take stock of. So I'm I'm not too plugged into July. Oh my God. June football. Yeah. I think that's probably the healthiest way to follow this time of year as a football fan, which is not to follow it. But there are three things that I pay attention to this time of year and a player looking great or showing up in the best shape of his life are not among them. Everyone should look good without pads. So what I'm listening for are quotes or observations about players struggling, because I think those are the most honest takes this time of year. I'm also praying no one gets seriously hurt. And of course, I want to know who's there and who isn't. And right now, there is a very big isn't. What are your thoughts on DK Metcalf's absence from minicamp? Uh, I'm not reading into it at all yet. Maybe if the messaging from DK and the team changes if the rhetoric takes a bit of a uh, nosedive into something a little more sinister than I would be concerned. But I mean, he's rehabbing an injury. The, the conversation between he and the organization has seemed nothing but positive up to this point. They've continually claimed that they're going to get a deal done. So until until one of them says otherwise, I I couldn't care less. Good for him. Take a day off, brother. You deserve it. <laughs> yeah, I generally agree with that. And I want to loop in today's guest to get his sense of things, too. If you've been with us since the beginning, this man needs no introduction. If you've joined us recently, I am excited for you. Former all-conference and national championship winning offensive lineman Matt Nichols is with us today. He's going to give us his insights into the Seahawks offensive line. Matt, welcome back. Jackson, Mike, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. All right. Before we get to the big guys up front, give us your take on the DK-shaped hole in Seahawks minicamp. Yeah. Um, when I read about it yesterday, the first thing that came to my mind was he's in, or he's rehabbing that injury. Not a big deal. But the more I thought about it, because we have brand new quarterbacks running the system, or I should say at least one with Drew Locke, um, I actually think it is a little bit bigger of a deal than it normally would be. Um, Now, we're not putting a new scheme in, per se, since Shane Waldron has been there for a year, but we have a new trigger man, probably, Um, the way Mm -hmm. I think it'll end up playing out. 
So that so that to me is a little bit of a concern. What's the timing on the dig routes? What's the timing on the go ball? All of those things as they're feeling each other out. OTAs is a great chance to get out there and just run around and start the timing process. Now, would he have actually been able to be out there healthy running with the foot? That's a different story. Um, because if he's not, then it's less of an issue with him missing it. Um, but again, everything that's coming out or that has always come out from DK has always been very positive. Everything from the Seahawks about the situation has always been, um, we're going to get a deal done. It's just a matter of time. So in, in the end, I don't think it's a huge deal at this point. Now, we start training camp and he's still not there. Um you know, at this point in his career, he's not Walter Jones who can roll in the Monday before the first game and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, do back-to-back all-pro seasons. Um, so that that would be a concern. At this point, more of a nuisance than anything as a fan. But go ahead, dude. Rehab, be better. Be be healthy for the season. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I, I think those are all salient takes. And if you've made the mistake of following me on Twitter, you probably already know where I stand on most of this stuff, but I'm generally pretty comfortable with the idea of both players and teams understanding their leverage when it comes to contract discussions. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a huge subsection of fans who just want to see their team's best players in camp. And that's an entirely defensible position. I agree with it. Uh, I try to think about it like this though. If I had one chance to try and secure upwards of nine figures in guaranteed money, working an occupation with an insanely high risk of serious injury, For a company worth billions of dollars, I would be extremely careful about how I approach the months leading up to that inflection point. Uh, I think it's important to remember that DK Metcalf just played the final three months of a lost season on a broken foot and didn't say shit about it. Uh, Now he's rehabbing it in L.A. And while I'd love to see him at the VMAC, I, I get it. Withholding one's presence from organized team activities is one of the few ways players can exercise leverage in these situations, besides unfollowing them on social media, which I don't think <laughs> DK's done yet. Because uh, this is under a collective bargaining agreement that overwhelmingly favors teams over players. So for me, it's it's too early to worry. You guys both said it. The communication publicly between both camps has been really positive. I still don't see any reason um, to think that a deal won't get done. But yeah, I, I don't blame DK or his agent for being extremely careful. I mean, who who knows? He, he could have rolled an ankle during his rehab and doesn't want the team to see him limping on his other foot or something while they're, you know, trying to figure out how much money to pay him. We, we just don't know. So you're putting a lot uh, of negative energy into, into the air right now with that. <laughs> don't manifest anything, no, brother. I mean, My God, it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's more about just being aware of what we don't know in these situations and also just how far away from the start of the season we are when it comes to elite athletes rehabbing. I mean, the amount of progress that can be made over the next three months is, is pretty remarkable, but a situation to monitor for sure. Well, and I, I do think the one thing though, is the leadership aspect. There is a void now with Bobby and Russell being gone and DK was, is a natural alpha. Like if, if there's an alpha, there's the alpha. And so that's the one thing within this, where I keep kind of going back to the leadership aspect. Now, now Tyler Lockett is obviously, is the I think he's the longest tenured hawk at this point. He'll fill in there. But if there's an alpha, that's the alpha of alphas. I mean, remember when Richard Sherman yeah. used to talk about Cam Chancellor, like, we're all dogs, but there's the lion? That's the yeah. dude right yeah. there. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe it's the lack of being able to set the tone with him. But again, we're early in OTAs. Get to training camp, it's a different story. Totally. And look, we've been down this road before with Seattle's best players, and they have always 
gotten it done with the exception of really Earl Thomas, right? And and generally speaking, they get their big guys locked up before the season starts. So, uh, you know, maybe a tiny bit of smoke, but I don't think there's any fire just yet. Uh, and I appreciate your boys' thoughts on the situation, but we are here to talk about the offensive line. Last week, we chatted with Matty Brown about whether the absence of Russell Wilson might actually allow for a more direct implementation of Shane Waldron's offensive scheme. Matt, knowing how unique Wilson's play style was and maybe how challenging it is to call plays for a quarterback like that, do you think that that applies to the blockers up front? Is it going to be a little bit easier for Shane Waldron to do what he wants to do? One thing we don't know yet, what truly is the Shane Waldron offense, because he's never actually been able to call plays without Russell and Russell's scheme Mm -hmm. from Bevel to Shoddy to Waldron has all been very similar, like very, very similar. I think this will be an opportunity for Waldron's playbook to truly expand to be where he wants it to be, Um, you know, somewhere between the 49ers and the Rams, somewhere in that aspect. But from a pure uh, blocking perspective, it's going to give the O-line more of or a better opportunity to continue to grow together, but also not to have to hold blocks for six and seven seconds. Um, So I really think we're going to (laughs) see, you know, I I think we're going to see a younger O-line, obviously, um, with the probably the two new starting tackles, but maybe a better O-line in terms of stats and how they produce simply for the fact that we probably will see more rhythm in this offense than we've seen in the past. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned stats because really the only ones that most people pay attention to myself included for offensive linemen is sacks allowed, right? That's the big one. How many sacks have you allowed and how many times have we seen Dwayne Brown, who is the best Seahawks offensive lineman since the aforementioned Walter Jones block his dude for four seconds, all the way out around the perimeter only to see Russell Wilson spin right into the guy and take the sack because you know, he's, he's trying to make something big happen downfield and, and he's, you see Brown just pissed off, man. Like, like I did my job, you know, but, but that was always the give and take with Wilson because for every one of those, you'd get a couple of plays that were 40 yarders that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So I, I am curious to see if this really does allow for more of that quick read, quick throw, uh, you know, hit your man early in the drop back type of stuff that, you know, we all sort of anticipated from Waldron coming over from LA. Well, and we saw it early actually in preseason last year um, with the play calling because Russell didn't play in the preseason at all. So we saw a lot of the quick hitting, um, you know, even when you'd spread it out, it, it would be three hitches and two go routes. We would see more crossing routes. We saw more sail routes or a flood concept. We saw those things in the preseason when Gino and the other quarterbacks were running stuff. And we actually saw more of it again when Gino was back in, when Russell was was injured. So I imagine we're going to truly get more of, of what we're expecting from Shane Waldron. Again, taking advantage of the middle of the field, you know, 20 yards and in, uh, and, and really trying to be on tempo and on time and quick release. Cause that's never been part of the Seahawks offense since essentially Matt Hasselbeck. I mean, T Jack was mm-hmm. not that guy with the, with the quick release stuff. And Russell certainly has not been um, since at least his second or third year in the league. It's going to be very interesting to see who wins the quarterback job. And I think that may affect exactly what the playbook looks like. Um, I think, I think from a talent slash ceiling perspective, Geno Smith and Drew Locke so far are probably fairly similar, but I do think that 
Um, they each have strengths that the other doesn't. Uh, Drew Locke is a downfield passer. That's what got him to the NFL. He has a big arm. Um, he struggled with the anticipation, um, with the reads in Denver. And it, and it just sounds like he, like his relationship with the coaches was never awesome. And, and it sounds like the coaches just, just didn't love him. And Pete Carroll has talked about really leaning into him and supporting him and believing he can be the guy. Um, with Gino, I, I think there's a little bit more of that seasoned professionalism where if you just want to go out and be able to execute the plays that are being called, um, maybe you're sacrificing a little bit of upside with him. But as we saw when he filled in for Russell Wilson, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. And you, we all know how important that has been to Pete Carroll, maybe even to the Seahawks' detriment, is him wanting to avoid mistakes, avoid turnovers. Do you get a sense from what you've seen from these two quarterbacks, which one is kind of a best fit for what Seattle wants to do going forward. At this point, I, th I think the best fit go, if it were starting now, it's obviously Gino because he's had time in the system. He understands the receivers where they need to be the timing, the landmarks where the ball needs to go. I actually kind of think drew might separate himself come training camp and preseason simply for the fact that a little, you know, but they're both good athletes. They're both, you know, really decent athletes. Um, I just think that Pete tends to go young and he really has an eye. He's had an eye for Drew Locke and he's mentioned it several times since the trade where it has been. He has. If if he came out in this draft, he would have been the best quarterback or he'd been the best quarterback in the draft. Now, whether that's a detriment to this draft class or not, that's <laughs> yeah. a different conversation. Yeah. But for him and John Schneider multiple times to come out and to rave about how they liked him, where they thought he would go in the first round of that draft, I actually think there might be an internal edge for Drew to get the call um, because we know what we have in Geno, and they're trying to see mm -hmm. what they have in Drew. Um, a lot of people were incredibly high on Drew coming out of college and – uh, you know, it's it's. I will tell you this: he's had what four different coordinators in the last five years, um, something like that. It, it, from Denver mm -hmm. to college to now here in Seattle, that's a really steep learning curve. Um, so right now, it's absolutely Gino as as Drew's learning his fourth language in five years. But I really think Seattle is trying to get it to Drew. Yeah, yeah, I I think so too, and I. I don't think there's any sense that, okay, the next chapter of Seahawks football is going to revolve around Geno Smith. If Geno Smith wins the job, I think it's a one-year deal, and they're definitely going in a different direction with quarterback next year. Without giving Drew Locke the chance to actually be the starter in Seattle, maybe he changes my mind. I'm kind of hoping either one of these guys is just a one-year stopgap, kind of the way that uh, Tavares Jackson was in between Matt Hasselbeck and Russell Wilson. But... I do think that if Drew Locke is the starting quarterback, it is an audition for being quarterback of the future. So um, that's going to be really, really interesting to see exactly how that plays out and if he's capable of of taking the reins because he struggled with doing that from Teddy Bridgewater, who is very Geno Smith-like in in a lot of ways. So that's it's it'll it, it will be the main talking point for this team all season for sure. But bringing it back up to the ball, the NFL draft this year. We saw Seattle go in a totally different direction than what they've done in the 
past, I don't know, seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. And that was hammering the offensive line early. And we talked a little bit about Dwayne Brown earlier. He's gone now. And that is a massive vacuum. He's being replaced by Charles Cross, which is a pick that both Mike and I loved. Um, and we've talked a lot about the role of the left tackle on this show because you're not just the anchor of the offensive line, right? You are the alpha dog in the locker room. We, we've talked about how for a lot of these teams, the left tackle, like if you had to send out one dude from your NFL team to win a fight against one dude from another team, you're probably sending out your left tackle. And there's no question in my mind, Seattle would have been sending out Dwayne Brown. So, just how big are the shoes that Charles Cross is being asked to fill now that Brown is gone? You think about the last 20 years of Seahawks football, we've had two of the best left tackles in the game at any one point in time, except for about that three-year period in between Walter Jones and Dwayne Brown when it was a sieve. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, those are massive shoes to fill. Uh, you, we talked earlier about like Dwayne's reaction after giving up a sack at six seconds and kind of the body language and how it would fall apart. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine the frustration of holding a block for that long and doing your job at a very high level and then still getting that sack put against you. Offensive line, you, you talked about they have one stat, which is sacks allowed. There's a second one, penalties. Like, those are it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're like Jermaine Effetti uh, with tons of penalties – or you're giving up lots of sacks. Like it's it's a really bad position as far as stats. They don't, you know, only Orlando Pace at Ohio <laughs> right. State got pancake block stats. Other than right. that, yeah, no, yeah. there's no other stat for it. To replace Dwayne, who was still playing it at, at the beginning of the season, I was wondering if he was, you know, if if he had slowed down a bit. But by the end, he was playing very good football. He was. And so to replace that is going to be immensely hard, especially for a rookie especially against this division. My goodness, the D-line talent in this division is off the hook. And it's not just one type. It's not just speed or power or scheme. It's yes to all of them. Um, So it's going to be a massively steep learning curve. Now, I love the selection across at nine. I I was very happy to see that they took an O-lineman that high, you know, going back to like Russell Okung, um, where, where it had been that long since they had taken o lineman very, very high in the draft. So it was good to see, hey, we believe in this guy. Let's solidify the left side of our or the left side of our line because Damian Lewis is there. And then let's then then we can expand from there. So I loved that first pick. Tell me a little bit more about cross the player. We've talked a little bit about what he's going to be asked to do. What you've seen of this guy, do you think that he's got what it takes to grow into that role? Yeah, he. I mean, for somebody that's six foot five, three hundred and ten pounds, he looks fairly lean, which is crazy to think um, at at that massive of a size. In time, he's going to get larger and stronger, but the athleticism is there. Like there's there's not an issue with his pass protection. I mean, coming out of college, he's he's one of the best pass blockers the game saw last year, and he's doing that in the SEC, where again we talk about the talent of the D line in the NFC West. The SEC is alphas on alphas on alphas on the D-line. so And he's been in a very difficult situation with Mike Leach there, who basically throws his O-line under the bus every single game and is like, we're going five wides, have fun blocking, figure it out. Um, so <laughs> so I, the pass pro- protection aspect 
there's going to be a learning curve because again, you know, he's early 20s going against guys in their late 20s, early 30s who have, you know, the Aaron Donalds will occasionally line up against him. Bosa is going to be lining up against him. Like have the, like have fun with that learning curve, but he'll get it. He's athletic enough to get it. His body mechanics are good enough. His ankle flexion, his hand placement was really good when I was watching stuff. Um, so I'm excited to watch him grow into that position. Now, rookie, it's going to be, you know, rough waters. That's there's just no way, two ways about that. I think the last offensive lineman that I ever saw that came in to the Seahawks immediately and that was solid was Steve Hutchinson. Um, you know, everyone struggles with sure. that. So what are we looking for? What's the, what's the goals for this season? This is a growing season. Now we're talking about the, the Hawks are always talking about always competing and they're trying to win. Well, absolutely. They're trying to win, but this is a reloading type of season um, and not tearing it down to the studs with a rebuild. So he's going to be great at left tackle over time. I think he's going to be a very, very good left tackle. You know, uh, you watch that position, all the positions up front, so much differently than I do and, and so much differently than most people, I think. You talked about a couple of specific traits that I'm hoping you can dive into a little bit more with Cross. You talked about his ankle flexion and his hand placement. What did you mean by that? Ankle flexion is it, your ability to ankle, anchor yourself comes through your core and your ankles. So when you're facing a bull rush and somebody is you know, right in your chest and pushing you back. It's your ability to keep your inside leg, which in this case is the left tackle is his right leg forward while planting your back foot, your left leg and having the strength through your toes, through your ankles, up through your knees to not continue to get pushed back. Ankle flexion is one of the things it, it's, it's an athletic trait. Like you have it or you don't, it's not something you can truly hmm. gain a lot of, um, you know, I've, I've heard some commentators talk about how their love of looking at athletes' calf muscles. A lot of that comes from ankle flexion. Like the ability to move comes from our ankles, our ability to get on the ground and get off of the ground with movement. And for an O-lineman in a pass set, when you're going backwards and the guy against you is going forwards at a full head of steam, it's that ability to plant that back leg and to anchor your body that's really important. Hand placement comes in every play. That is truly... If we're running a zone away, I got to get my hand to the outside, uh, to the play side shoulder pad, my my right hand, let's say they're running a, a wide zone to the right as a left tackle. I have to get, you know, if I'm cutting somebody off, I have to get my hand to the right shoulder, to the left shoulder pad, my right hand, and then my left hand up on the number so I can start to work my hand away, my, my body towards the run. Hand placement is... I, I miss my punch. The defender slides and is able to get into the gap and make a tackle. The, that, that hand placement is absolutely critical for everything. And he's, he was very good with it uh, in the film that I watched from Mississippi State. That's super interesting because it's, it's like I watch a play develop and, you know, I'm trying to look at a lot of different things. And I kind of just notice whether a lineman gets beat or not. But sacks or penalties. Yeah, sacks or penalties. That's that's right. You know, and it's it's something where to my untrained eye, I see two bears wrestling up front, but it really is a very technical battle, isn't it? It's incredibly technical. Um you know, think go back to the NFC championship game against the Green Bay Packers, when Marshawn Lynch started off, they were in the shotgun. Marshawn was to his right side, and he ran that kind of that diagonal run across the left 
for the touchdown right behind Okung and James Carpenter. Yeah. You know, Carpenter was lambasted by the, the fans in Seattle. If you watch that block, that is one of the better blocks people will ever see. The way he was able to get his hand placement to the outside shoulder of the guy he was trying to block and then slowly move his body through um, was just it allowed that that play to open up um, half the time with offensive line. It is just staying in contact with that defensive lineman long enough so the running back can get through the hole. You don't have to blow them out of the water that, you know, the days of. Again, I keep going back to Walter Jones because he's the best offensive lineman I've ever seen play. Um, you know, Walter Jones in the NFC Championship, or I think it was the NFC Championship game, but I know it was against Carolina, where, where there's a run to the left side and he's literally pushing a guy 20 yards down the field. That doesn't happen unless it's in high school. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, so yeah, the just the the technicalities of the O-line, how that works in synchronization with each other. Um, you know, something like a double team. Let's say a center and a guard have a one technique so he's over the center and they need to block him and the middle linebacker. There's a harmonious nature of when the ball is snapped, both stepping with the same feet at the right hand, where the hand placement for each of them needs to be so they're not punching at exactly the same spot, the rhythm of blocking that one technique, but then giving, let's say, the center enough time to go and to release to get to that middle linebacker. So if the running back does break through the the D-line, there's a body on that middle linebacker not running into the hole to make a <clears throat> excuse me to to make a tackle. So yeah, there's it, it it's it's a harmonious movement. It's a harmonious, very skilled movement of five to seven people depending on tight ends, um, all at one time. Yeah, it's crazy because you know we we're trying to judge these guys as individual performers, you know, give them a PFF grade or break down how they did. And, and a lot of it really is dependent on what the guys next to them are doing too. You know, you can, you can hit your assignment perfectly, but if a guy one or two links down the chain, isn't, it can really throw off how effective it looked like you were on that play as a blocker, huh? Well, we've, we've seen it multiple times too, where like a running back might have a blitz pickup and the O line, if there's uh you know, sliding to one side, they leave somebody wide open. And then you would see, well, I'm per se not on Twitter, but I know there's the tweets of why is that left tackle or that right tackle not picking up that DN stuff like that. Well, that's a communication thing where that was the running back's assignment. Um, it can often look like an O lineman is not blocking anybody, but that was his job was to slide one direction and to have somebody else pick up um, a blitzing linebacker or a D end. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it can get really, it can look really bad um, when it's actually not their fault. I want to uh, move to the other side of the line because Seattle also used a day two pick uh, to select another tackle, drafting Abraham Lucas out of Washington State. Uh, he's going to compete for the starting job on the other side. Tell me what you think of him. And also, just how scary is it to potentially be trotting out two rookies as the bookends of your line? Yeah, uh, let's start there. That's quite worrisome, um, you know, and especially because center isn't exactly locked up either with which direction they're going there. Um, you know, and the center is the one that's making all the line calls. So what's the communication out to two rookies? How does all of that look? The pick of Ab Abraham Lucas, I really like that as well, simply for the aspect that you have another really solid pass protector. Um, going back and looking at... Uh, or I've watched Washington State a few times over the last few years. 
and he's a really solid. He's his movement is very smooth. Um, you know, they're not going to ask him to try to go to left tackle because I don't think his skill set is there. Um, but I think it was like three thousand total snap, over three thousand snaps in college, and gave up four sacks and six QB hits, something like that. Um, had the number one pass protection rate in the Pac-12. Like a really, really wow. solid, um, large human, six seven, three twenty. So again, we're getting these massive um, offensive linemen who are athletic. Um, they're not slugs that don't move. They have the, they're, you know, they have really good movement. Um, but yeah, I, I liked the balance that I saw with Ab- Abraham Lucas. Um, There's a couple times I saw his body get out of position and he was able to just kind of slide back, um, you know, not get overextended too far where there's where he was past the point of no return. Um, And again, playing in Mike Leach and Nick Rolovich's offense where it's a lot of wide open stuff. You're on a lot of islands. You don't get a ton of opportunities to have a tight end, you know, chip block for you or running back to be there to help clean up your mess. You're on an island and you better figure it out or else, again, Sacks or penalties. You know, Matt, you mentioned that Abraham Lucas was arguably the top pass protector in the Pac-12 this year. That was the hallmark of Charles Cross's draft profile as well. He was maybe the best pass protector in the entire uh, draft this year. The default opinion on the Pete Carroll era Seahawks is that they just want to run the ball all the time. And for the first seven years or so, that was definitely the case. However, over the last few, we have seen Seattle be at or near the top third in the NFL in neutral situation pass rates. At first glance, everything about this offseason seems to signal a return to the run-centric approach. But you did just mention that the two tackles they drafted are very adept pass blockers. What are your expectations for run-pass splits this season? And if you do believe the run rates will be higher, is that something you see being more reflective of the current roster? Or is it a long-term philosophy you think that they're going to return to? I, I think in the end, Pete really does believe the run sets up everything. Um, and it's not just run focus. He, he always talks about balance. And I think balance gets skewed as 50-50. We want to run it 50% of the time and throw it 50% of the time. What balance has always meant to me as a player was in a situation, let's take a second and seven, we can either run it or we can throw it. A third and three, we can either run it or we can throw it. Um, You look at some of the teams and they get into – you know, a, a second and seven, and you know for a fact that they're going to be throwing the ball uh, just because they have no run game. They can't establish that at all. I, mm-hmm. you know, and following what McVeigh has done down in St. Louis or down in Los Angeles, um, if, if Walden is truly going to copy that, the run and play action really did set up almost everything with them. I think it was probably the first four games that McVeigh was calling for the Rams when I sent you a text and I'm like, this is a yeah. master class in offensive philosophy, and I'm grooving this. Like, I, I actually whipped out a piece of paper and just started jotting down plays Ooh. that he was doing. Worried Be- where that was going. <laughs> uh, because Simply because of the fact he was doing stuff in the NFL five years ago that no one else was doing, and it was concepts that were so available that were being done in college and high schools to create space and and movements within the defense. Um, But yeah, I think we're going to be getting back to more of a heavy run game. And again, if you look at the last half of the season, when the Seahawks actually started looking decent, 
they were running a lot of mid zone. They were, I mean, Rashad Penny was hammering the they hole. Were. And the line, I talked earlier about the, the synchronicity of it. The line was moving in this beautiful, harmonious situation movements and then getting to linebackers. And Penny was getting to the hole and then seeing, hey, where is it opening up? And then he was attacking it through. Um, I, I think Pete really sees that as the way forward within this division, especially with not a top five quarterback uh, calling the shots at this point. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna absolutely see more runs. Now I think we're gonna see a larger selection of of more diverse run game because Russell was in the shotgun so much. It does limit what you can do, and you could see. Even towards the end of the season, when Rashad Penny started getting going, you know, with with you know mid zone and mid zone split, um, they were doing it out of pistol because Russ was so un- not not necessarily that he was uncomfortable under center, but it just wasn't what he does. I mean, he was in shotgun or pistol so much. I think it was like thirtieth or thirty or number one or two in the NFL for shotgun snaps yeah. last year. I mean, it, it was crazy. Um, we're gonna see more of the under center runs more diverse run game um and and really that's that's what pete wants well yeah and you know the rams passing attack has received so many accolades and i mean we just saw cooper cup put up a top five receiving season ever but they really are an under center show run every single play type of offense and i think that gets lost when you just look at the stats and see the yards and the touchdowns but I I truly believe that, like you said, balance isn't about achieving a 50-50 split. Balance is about being effective enough at both running and passing the ball that the defense can't cheat one way or the other. And they might not have the talent to do it on the offensive side of the ball yet, but I agree that that is philosophically what they want to get back to. Because, you know, during the LOB era, it's easy to forget just how potent that offense was and how many points the Seahawks could score. And, you know, it, it wasn't unusual to see them score 34, 40, even 50 points during that stretch. And, and they were doing it from a very balanced perspective. So balance doesn't have to mean boring balance can still be extremely explosive. Um, so I'll be curious to see how they're able to implement that. Uh, before, (laughs) before we finish up here, I do want to uh, dive into some of the other guys that we haven't mentioned up front. So we'll do a little lightning round here, Matt. And if there's one word or one phrase for each of these guys that stands out to you, I want to hear them. All right, let's do it. Damian Lewis stud. Hope he goes back to right guard. Really? Tell me why. thought he played better as a rookie at right guard than he did left guard. Um, not now he played a lot injured last year. Um, so maybe it was the uncomfortability with that. Um, but as a rookie, right guard, and I went and, you know, I was fortunate to see him when LSU played Auburn, uh, the national championship year. I went down to that game. And within the first quarter, my buddy who I played football with at PLU, he and I were both raving about how good Damian Lewis was uh, down there. So, yeah, I, I he played a phenomenal rookie year, a little bit of a step back last year, um, but he's a stud. He, he's he's a beast. You think he's the real deal? I do. I really do. Um, he... His ability, he's strong as an ox. Uh, once he gets his hand on you, it's over. Um, he really needs to, if, the, if he's going to stay at left guard, he has to be mindful with the rookie on the outside facing the best pass rusher 
of not trying to help and just stay grounded within his position um, and only doing his job. You know, it goes back to that old Bill Belichick, do your job. Um, you know, I, I would worry about him maybe trying to jump out a little bit, but he's he's very good, very physically talented, strong as an ox. Um, really like him a lot. I think going into this year, he's who I think is our best offensive lineman. Okay, I like that. That's encouraging. Talk to me about Gabe Jackson. Disappointing last season. Um, I, I'm very okay. So he came from the Tom Cable offense down in Los Angeles. You know, Tom Cable, everyone's favorite up here in Seattle, um, <laughs> where they were running a lot of. I mean, where they where they run his own blocking scheme. Um, came up here, struggled initially through this beginning of the season, and then everything started to get a little bit better. I'm curious if he's going to be a trade or a cut a lot of caps uh if they cut him um but i really liked uh when when he's playing well he plays very well the guards right now are the only position i actually think is kind of solidified with seattle and and you know i'll throw a name out phil haynes um the couple of games he played in, he played very well as well so i think between the three of those that's the that's the most solidified position in seattle's offensive line you talked a little bit about Gabe Jackson potentially being a cut or trade candidate, uh, but you can only carry so many offensive linemen. And you, yeah. It's really important to have guys that can kind of move around. And, and typically it seems like it's those interior guys that move around a little bit more. Is Phil Haynes good enough to make you start thinking about moving on from Gabe Jackson? Well, we also saw Damian Lewis snap some at center last year. Remember that? Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, can you keep all three of them? Because Haynes also is, has taken snaps at center as well. Um, you know, can he? Can those two be the one that would rotate to center in a backup position? Um, the, two ga- the two games that Haynes started, it, for them to pick up his contract this year and bring him back shows that they saw something within him. Um, I, th- I think he could be a, a very solid offensive lineman. Um, again, I think it's the best position offensive line that, or best position within the offensive line that they have. I'm into it. All right. A couple others for you. Austin Blythe and Kyle Fuller. Center worries me. <laughs> um, you know, go, going back to Max Unger, we haven't had that dude at center. Um, you know, Justin Britt had a good, when, they, when Britt moved from right tackle to guard to center, he finally found a position that he was really good at. Um, but we have not had the consistency at center. What did Blythe play last year with Kansas City? 13, 16 snaps, something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a high-volume road grader right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, zero sacks allowed. Yeah. Hey, there we go. Zero penalties, too? Did we get that at least? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he got the donut holes in, in bad penalties. That's right. Um, no, that that – that that's worrisome. Um, now he comes from, he played for Andy Dickerson in Los Angeles with Shane Waldron. Um, so is he here to be a teacher of the, of the system? Like when Seattle brought in Ben Hamilton, when Pete first came with through the whole Alex Gibbs situation on offensive line, offensive line, a lot of times teams will bring in somebody from that system, maybe with the opportunity that they stay on the roster deep buried in you know buried in the in the room simply for the teaching aspect so you have another harmonious voice with the with the new offensive line coach there uh Kyle Fuller was replaced by Ethan Posick as soon as Posick was essentially healthy last year um that's what I think about the center position 
Yeah, well, you are uniquely qualified to talk about it. That is that was your position. Just really briefly, talk about the mental responsibilities of the center in addition to the physical ones. The center is the one that's always calling the offensive line blocking schemes. Um, so if a team comes up with an even front or an odd front, what are we going to do? All of a sudden you see the DBs move from, you know, an open middle of the field, like cover two look to a cover three, and you see a safety start to sneak down and, and possibly blitz off the side. How are we going to slide our offensive line? Or now in the NFL, we're seeing more and more three, fun, fr- three fronts um, where teams are sending four aside or doing more of the uh, of the um, overload blitz schemes. So the center is the one that has to identify what's going on, communicate it to all of the other offensive linemen and to the quarterback so he knows where his weak spot is going to be. Um, you know, typically within about a three or four second period from the time you get up to the time the ball is snapped. Um, so there's not a lot of time for an offensive lineman to do that. That was one of the reasons Joey Hunt was kept around for as long as he was, was he was a, you know, he was a very good communicator at making sure everybody was in the right position. Um, now we look at the physical talent of the two centers and that still worries me. Um, you know, Blythe did not have great marks as, as an offensive lineman, even when he was starting for the three years down with the Rams. Um, you know, and then to only play a handful of snaps last year. And then when Fuller was in there, he got bulldozed a ton. Um, you know, he had he had a hard time um, staying with his man. So I'm just, uh, you know, that that's the position I'm most worried about within the offensive lineman. Um, tackles are the youngest. Guards are the strongest. Center's the one that worries me the most. So you mentioned the tackles. There's a couple names left here to get your thoughts on. And that's Jake Curran and Stone Forsyth. Uh, they project to be the depth tackles, but do you see a world in which either of these guys break camp as the starter? Probably not, unless Kerr hands at guard. Then that's the one thing um, that I heard yesterday coming out of camp is that he was working at right guard. Uh, and so that would be very interesting to see. For an undraft, I mean, for any for any rookie, I thought he played really well last year. Um, going back and watching some of like the Rashad Penny long runs, he does a very good job of helping seal his block and then moving to the second level um, to pick up the guy. Cause it's, it's usually that second level block, the linebacker block that springs the run for to, to go from a good run to a great run is, is that because in the NFL, you're not going to block the DBs. They, like that's just not happening. You as a running back have to beat that DB on your own. Um, and Curhan did a really good job of starting at level one, you know, helping seal whoever he was, you know, Gabe Jackson or the tight end, seal his block, but then moving to level two. I always thought he looked better. He would look better as a guard. And I think this might be the opportunity for that to happen. Um, Stone Forsyth, when we saw him last year, that's a huge human being. Um, yeah, he is. A little bit. Yeah, it's a mountain of a man. Um, Top heavy dude, too. Very much so. Um, and so the, the movement did not look skilled or graceful. Uh, in in that and if they really saw him as a legitimate starter I don't think that they spend two of their top four picks on tackles Um, you know Forsyth was kind of a surprise pick two years ago when they only had what three draft picks and they chose him as the last one Um, 
you know, may, maybe it's time to move on um, and just be like, dude, we, you, we're good as a backup here. Um, but I, I, Kerhan really intrigues me a lot. Uh, maybe a Chris Gray type of guy, like the old right guard from the Super Bowl team mm-hmm. where he was just mm-hmm. kind of that crusty old dude that did a lot of the dirty work. Um, sure. Like just you, ha- you have to have those. Um because he's he's not an athletic no. jump off the page. I think I think his like his athletic testing combine numbers are like bottom five percentile. But he is a grimy dude, dude. That's and sometimes you just gotta have those guys that are just all grit and no talent. Uh, and, and, and if you're in the NFL with bottom five percent talent, you're all grit. Like yeah. that's you're all grit. Um, so he did a and, good and job. And those he, are the guys that set. Those are the guys that set the tone for the more athletic dudes too, right? Like, I mean, if you're going to get in the phone booth with an alligator like Jake Curran, it's you can't just be a great athlete. You gotta you gotta have some toughness with you. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you talk about like the left tackle being the first guy off of the bus. You know, sometimes you just want your meanest dude. Um, yeah. You know, and and he kind of plays an offensive line with a defensive lineman's mentality of just kind of mean um which is really cool to see because if you don't have the talent if you don't have the physical talent you got to make up for it with somewhere um so yeah i i I really am intrigued by him i i hope this season we get to see more of him um you know whether it's even going back to like the george fant package when they would throw the extra tight end out there just for blocking Mm -hmm. i'd love to see that with him not not just for not just for blocking matt one catch oh and what a catch it was. What a catch. Glorious. And it was a beautiful <laughs> yeah. number he rocked on that jersey, too. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Matt, thank you once again for making us all smarter. I always look forward to chatting about football with you. I'm thrilled that everyone listening gets a chance to hear your thoughts as well. So thanks for coming on. Jackson, Mike, always a pleasure. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Oh, we're going to, man. We're going to now. And if you're checking us out for the first time at home, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Feel free to give us a follow on social media as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is at at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave us a quick review. We are immensely blessed to have you guys listening and the support that you guys have shown for the show has been amazing. So please continue to leave those reviews, share it with your friends on social media, and let's keep building this thing. We're going to be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh, 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 oh